Oh, um, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Edie. <laughs> and so, you, you don't know what this night's been like already. Um, and it's, I, I think it's really great to be here, I think. Um, <laughs> first, I want to I wanna thank Michelle and the committee and, and uh, Dave uh, especially. They, they just really went out of their way. Uh, to accommodate my family. Um, I'm gonna, haven't even got started. My birth family's here. And, uh, you know, I got my rose, I have my eagle feather. Uh, <laughs> My first sponsor always taught me, you get dressed and God will do the rest, you know. Uh, I really, uh, really want to acknowledge all of the people that stood up uh, within 30 days or just completed 30 days. I really want to acknowledge you one for having the courage to be here. And uh, it's really, it's really of my opinion, and I think there are a lot of people of that opinion, that without you, the rest of us are out of a job. So I want to welcome you because you're the lifeblood of the program, and it's always great to be in a, in, at a conference where there's so many new people. So I just want to welcome you, and I want you to really think about the fact that you're sitting in a room uh, with all of these people, and, and I was never able to do anything like that in my first 30 days, so I just want to really tell you that I'm impressed. I know it's going to be a spiritual talk because my ass is absolutely in convulsions. Uh, oh, I know for you proper people who came to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit cussing, I promise not to say the F word. Um, to tell you a little bit about what it was like and what happened, I can't remember any of it. My good friend Jeannie P here, and I know she knows my story as good as I. Jeannie? <laughs> uh, Jenny, Jenny. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not a circuit speaker. I really wish I was. <laughs> I had one tell me, his name was Don P. He said, this is what you do. You memorize it. Memorize one that works and just keep telling it. And I thought, well, you know, then you're really not talking from the heart. It says it's not about the heart, honey. It's about doing a talk. He's older. <laughs> the truth is, is that uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you tonight. As a child, I grew up in the, uh, around various areas around here, uh, out in the Fillmore. I was uh, from the wrong side of town. Bobby tells me that I could be a poster child for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a miracle. And I mean, it really is, and truly a miracle. I have relatives in this room tonight that have never heard me talk. And what I want you to know is you're going to hear some things that you've never heard about my life, and what I want you to know, it's not your fault. I know I'm dealing with that issue. 
ever been, I don't think to me, have you ever been to a knee of Alcoholics Anonymous even? No. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, they're in for a treat tonight. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I hope I can pull it off. Uh, I want to say something nice, you know, Larry. I want to say it was a nice experience. Uh, I can tell you it was real. And I can tell tonight it's going to be real. It's going to be real. Uh, I find myself, like, not wanting to go there. You know what I'm saying? I just don't want to go there. I don't want them to know, but they're going to know. And it's really going to be all right. Tell me it's going to be okay. Uh, well, I come from the kind of people they talk about in the big book calling uh, seeking lower companionship. It's not these people that are here. It's, uh, oh, well, shit. So, you know, who's here is my mother's, uh, they're my cousins. My, uh, my mother's brother's children, and they're my cousins. I don't know why I need to tell you that. I'm just going to tell you that before I tell you something else. <laughs> I'm going to get going here any minute. How you, how you uh, I got the alcohol. I'll tell you how I got here. Yeah. My very first meeting that I ever attended at Alcoholics Anonymous, my younger brother. I know, it is, it's ridiculous. Uh, his, his name is Shane. Uh, Shane uh, went through the uh, Mineral Park uh, VA hospital thing here in, uh, I think it's here, here in San Francisco actually. Uh, and he came to live with me in the Central Valley in a little town called Merced. He, uh, he said, you know, he, uh, at the hospital, at the VA hospital, they put me on uh, an abuse. And they told me I had to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but only a blood member can take me. They won't, they won't, they won't let me in. <laughs> they won't let me in, Alcoholics Anonymous, unless you take me. And since we don't know where a lot of our blood relatives are, or, you know, so it, you, you have to be the one. <laughs> so I thought, my God, you know, the least I could do would take him to his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, is the least I could do. And we went to a little meeting down on a, you know, well, who cares what it was? It was just this little a little room. And uh, you know how they have you sign in? Uh, well, see, we, we grew up in, in, in like foster care, and uh, and we did a, in foster homes, they had, they don't have it anymore, but they had a lot of government-issued food. And I don't know about any of you, like, that stood up in your first 30 days. Did you ever go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of make up something while you were there? Like, just, you know, you just decided some things, you know, and said, Oh, this must be what they're doing. You never ask any questions. You don't want anybody to know that you don't know. Now, uh, I don't know what it is that I didn't want them to know that I didn't know, but I just didn't want them to know that I didn't know. So, so, so I would make up all these things, and then I would live into them. That was I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1980, uh, in like November of 1980. Uh, when I signed in, I signed my whole name. Uh, I signed Edith Francis Cartwright uh, because I knew that you turned that into the social worker so she would issue you some coffee. 
and, and not suffering from looking good, I didn't. I wanted her to make sure that that I was not an alcoholic. And I noticed that you just put your initials, so I thought if I signed my whole name, that she would know that I wasn't an alcoholic. Uh, that if you're brand new, that's what is sort of insane thinking. And I did a lot of that. And when they called on, who do you think they called on first in that meeting? Well, they called on Edith Francis Cartwright. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, if you were sharing me, well, let's find out who this is. Uh, she thinks she's pretty important. <laughs> and you know what I told them? I told them, this is my brother. And I am a blood member. living Valdezes alive and found but I'm here with him and he's here and you know what they did to me after the meeting is they uh, bombarded me with their AA phone number and I had my first uh, resentment against Alcoholics Anonymous uh, the truth of the matter is, is that it, it was it's been uh, it's been a journey for me in Alcoholics Anonymous to tell you a little bit about how I got here. It's always an honor for me to be here with you because there are many members of my family that didn't make it to Alcoholics Anonymous, did not make it to a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous, ever. And my mother was one. My mother never made it to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think I'll ever know really whatever happened, but I do know one thing. My mother was an alcoholic who never had the honor or the privilege to be in a meeting. She never got a drunk driving and court order to Alcoholics Anonymous. She never walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she never got to sit in a meeting to decide, I don't want to be here in this meeting. You know, my mom took her madness down the hall and in a little house in San Jose, California. She sat down on the edge of the bed, and she shot and killed herself. And that's how my mom ended her madness with alcohol. I try to get the relatives to tell me a little bit about her, but you know, they don't, you know, I had, I had Sharon, it was actually Sharon said, you know, she'd talk to her mom and her mom doesn't really want to tell me anything because she doesn't know, you know, she doesn't want to tell me bad things about my mom. God, I'd just love to know anything about my mom. But what I do know is that I'm sober today and she never had this privilege. You know who else is, is sober today and he, he took me to my first meeting as my little brother. like come to that first meeting and decide that this is what he wanted and, and that, that it was going to, that this was a life, you know, my God, he found Alcoholics Anonymous except where he knew that if he applied him to his life, his life would work and everything would change and life would be wonderful. That didn't happen for my little brother. But I want you to know that my little brother, I think he's coming up on four years clean and sober. And I talked to him a couple of years, a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. And I want you to listen really carefully because this message is from him and I especially want the people who stood up that are new in the program, I want you to listen to this because this is from my brother. My little brother wants you to know, he's not really that little, he's six foot four, he's pretty, actually a fairly big guy, uh, <laughs> that if you're sitting in this room you never have to drink or use ever again. Ever again, you never have to drink or use. And you don't have to go to the places that he had to go to get sober. 
My little brother calls me Colette from Deer Lodge, Montana, and he's doing 30 years. That's where it took him. But he's working the program and he's sober. He started a no time meeting in Deer Lodge in the prison. And he's working hard and I want you to know I'm proud of him. In October, he's coming up on 10 years being in there. He would have had longer, but he smoked a little pot while he was in there. But if you're new, what I want you to know is you never have to pick up a drink ever, ever again. You don't have to go to the places that alcohol and I know this is a meaning of Alcoholics Anonymous, but most of you in here have participated in that other stuff. <laughs> I, just, I just spent the weekend with my sponsor down in L.A. and I went and heard her share at a meeting. She says in another 10 or 15 years, they'll all be gone. The ones that never used any drugs, they'll all be dead. <laughs> I know, that's very controversial. Uh, it's nothing against that. There are many people that have the privilege of getting here with never having to take drugs, and, and that's fine. But I think it's the nature of society that there's things, you know, when you walk in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in the meetings that I attend in Sacramento, there are people that are 14, 15 years old walking through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and guess what? They've used drugs. It's very hard for them to sit in a meeting and talk without talking about their experience. And of course, it's very, you need to know that anything I say up here is only my opinion. And that's all it is. So please don't get upset about it. And as Bob says, you may, you know, people get upset about Bob, Bobby's opinions about things. He's sober a long time and you know, there's a lot of controversy between the old timers and AA talking about all that stuff. Just because of his opinions, he says, but you need to know that when he goes to his room, he may have changed his opinion by the time he gets there. <laughs> and that's really, you know, when, when you go to the World Conference and, and you sit there and there's like 75,000 people, Alcoholics Anonymous is full of incredible diversity. Look at the room. Look at this room. There's incredible diversity in this room and there's many ways of expressing ourselves and our thoughts. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I go to a meeting, it's, it's group three. My home group is group three. And, you know, there's a lot of old timers there. And, and they talk a lot about what you shouldn't talk about. And, and it's really fine. And I don't know why I'm telling you all about this. Uh, I had my first drink when I was 10 years old in an old beat up car in a, in a little town called Trustinus in a bar called the 19th Hole. I, you know, after my mother died, I grew up with my first, my, see if you can track this, my Aunt Edith's daughter, her name was Mary. My father uh, was an alcoholic who couldn't take the responsibility of raising us and we went to live with her. She was not somebody who was a model mother. She was the kind of woman who was a bar drinking woman. She was a raging alcoholic when we went to live with her and for the, ten, for the next 10 years of my childhood after my mother died, my little brother and I, it was like we walked through 10 years of her, her, the chronic stages of her alcoholism. She took us to places that little kids should not go and we've seen things that little kids should not have seen. And by the time I was 10 years old, I want you to know I was not really a festive child. <laughs> And she didn't drink, she didn't drink alcohol in a glass with ice and pour, pour it in a glass and have a cocktail. They pulled it out from underneath the seat. They cranked off the lid and they kicked it back and they'd take a drink and they'd pass it to whoever was in the car. And I really believe that, that, that you, you learn to mimic the people that you grow up with. 
that whatever your family's doing, chances are you'll end up doing it too. You know, and so I was not, I was not living with people that drew, drove BMWs, that were lawyers that knew about goals and objectives in life, that wanted, you know, they were not talking to me when I was 10 years old about where I planned to go to college. And they would, they would, I don't know, I know there are a lot of you in here. There's a lot of us that had parents that, that, that were bar drinkers that would leave us in the cars and say, we'll be right back. <laughs> we'll be right back, we promise. We're going to have a couple of quick ones. A couple of quick ones. Just take the, kind of take the edge off. <laughs> they come back at midnight with a bag of peanuts and a Coke. That was dinner. <laughs> And I don't know why, you know, I don't know why this night was any different. I'd seen them do that, you know, that routine, and I'd gone through that routine that I knew it. And you know, when you're in the cars, even in a little town called Trustinity, even they get, the authorities get a little curious about kids sitting in cars four or five hours. So what they have you do is they have you lay down in the car so nobody can see that you're in the car. Do you know what it's like to be a little kid? There are many of you that know what it's like to be a little kid laying down in the car wondering if they're ever going to come out. Wondering if anybody cares about it. And we had no beat up Ford at this point, and this is prior duct tape. <laughs> you know, a lot of alcoholics get their AA today with duct tape cars. You ever notice that? <laughs> oh, I still have my car. You want to go with me to a meeting, you know? And you, you get out, and your, your clothes have all that duct tape all over them. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah, well, when I get a job, I'm going to get a postage job. When I get a job, I'm going to get a new car. And, and so, you know, I remember with all that, this, this was back in uh, probably about 1964. I'm 42 years old. I was born in 1955. Let's see, it was like I was 10 years old. It was 1965. <laughs> I was laying down in the seat. You know, that all that foam was kind of getting in my ear. And, uh, and I don't know why, but I reached under the seat. And there's a bottle of Sigma 7. And I, I must have said, well... <laughs> Maybe we'll have a drink. Maybe we'll just crank off this lid and just take a big old swig of this. I don't know what I thought. You know, what, do you, what does a ten-year-old kid think? Well, hell, they're doing it. Why don't I try it? So I, you know, cranked off the old lid. And it was a bottle of Sigrum 7, one of those little flat, dark, thick, brown, dark, you know how brown, with that really beautiful embossed label. With a seven, trimming gold, it's red, trimming gold. I cranked off the lid and there was about this much in it and I kicked it back and took my first drink. It came out of my tear duct, came out of my ears. It was like, it's like, you know how, and, they, they, and then I realized why they grunt, why they go, You know why they go like that? Because it sucks the wind out of you. It's just like, oh my God, no wonder they, I thought it was a cultural thing, because I had an Uncle Melton. Uh, he's a Hispanic man, his name is Milton Alviso. He was my grandmother's, uh, Grandma Kuka, uh, second husband. He'd go to the refrigerator and get water and drink it, and he'd always go, ah. Oh. So I thought it was like a Mexican thing. You know, I just thought like it was like a Mexican cultural thing. But, but what happened to me is magic. It was magic because the magic that happened is that, you know, I felt it burn. You know how it burns? It, it burns all the way down and then it gets down in your belly and it goes, wow. <laughs> it just lays out. And, for, and I want you to know for the first time in my life, 
I felt okay about being here. And alcohol worked for me. It was my magic. For a long time, it was a magic. And when when I was a little older, I found a soft top. And between that and that, ooh, ah. <laughs> you know, it was magical for me. And, uh, and I was an angry kid. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was full of hate. That's full of hate. I used to, you know, I was, uh, had a, uh, every time I come to San Francisco, I think about growing up as a child over there in the Fillmore. They actually tore those buildings down, but it used to be the ones that were like three stories tall and, and, and like a, a concrete U. And in that environment, you always know, you know, you knew who lived there and who didn't live there. You could tell if they were with the authorities. You could tell if they're a pro probation officer. You could usually tell. They, you know, it's, it was a, their attire. And, uh, I tell this story because it's a lot has a lot to do with who walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I must have been maybe maybe eight years old, seven or eight years old. And I had this bad habit of scraping gum off the ground. And I'm I'm sure that I did that because somebody told me not to. Since they tell you not to, I had to. So I was out in the courtyard and there was this you know, it was all kinda of, it was all concrete then with these really industrial looking swings and, you know, some jungle gym kind of stuff and there was a piece of bozo gum that hadn't been chewed. Like it had a lot of life left in it. You know what I'm talking about? And I had this nickel and I'm scraping up this gum and across the courtyard comes this lady, a little bit heavy. You know, her nylons were doing this. <laughs> some of them wedge action shoes and I looked over at her and I thought must be you know like a social worker you know as a child you think these things you know right she walked up to me and she said little girl why don't you take that nickel and go buy yourself some gum honey and I looked up at that lady and I said cuz I want to chew this gum that's why <laughs> Now, do you think, if you knew, that when I got here, they said, now, what we really recommend is that you work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which really recommended, and this is what we think you ought to do. You know, you really need to get a home group, you need to get a sponsor, you need to get into service, and these are the things that you need to do to be successful in your endeavor of recovery. Do you think I said, oh, okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. You know, that day, and I, you know, I was thinking about it today because that's my room, thinking. <laughs> think, 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 you know. Get in the bathtub, think, 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 you know. I always get nervous before I do this because, you know, I think, 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 think. And I thought about that woman, because you know what that woman, her name was Jerry, and I'll never know her last name, and I, I, I'd love to be able to find that lady uh, that, you know, with the gum thing that told me I need to go buy some gum. She was actually, uh, she actually turned out to be an Avon lady. She wasn't uh, a social worker. She was, yeah, I knew she wasn't one of us. Uh, but she found Mary that day. You know, and she came and got me. She came up to me and said that, uh, she had me a little Safeway suitcase and she said, uh, they said I can take you home. 
I remember driving across the Bay Bridge with her, feeling like I didn't have any value, but they just give me away. So by the time I got to you, I was so damaged. I mean to tell you, I had some problems when I got to you. You know, she took me to her home, and it was like it was the strangest thing I'd ever encountered. Because they was like they had schedules. <laughs> you know, like, he, he was a fireman in Oakland, and then she stayed at home. She was a homemaker. Um, I know my relatives must know this. Mary was a whore. <laughs> and uh, she took great pride in her profession. Uh, she didn't really manage her. She needed a manager. She really didn't need a manager. <laughs> but with Jerry and her husband, I don't even know what his name is. I lived with them maybe six months. I don't know. They bought me, uh, he took me to Disneyland and bought me a sailor suit. They bought me Flintstone vitamins. They had breakfast. I had these cute little Donald Duck sheets and stuff like that. You know, it was like I thought I was in heaven. <laughs> I know it sounds pretty funny, but I'm going to tell you something. I, was, I came from some wild-ass people. And sheets were not what... You know, Mary used to periodically get picked up for prostitution, and we'd get put in holding homes in various locations around the Bay here. And in those days, they, you know, they'd put you in a holding home when, when people got hauled off. And do uh, you know what I loved about those places the most? The sheets. The clean sheets. They were so crisp. And you could just tuck your little body in there, and I, I could just sleep so sound. And they had towels and stuff like that. I don't know why I'm telling you any of this. I have no idea. <laughs> well, it's part of my drinking. Maybe I'm just going to give it an ACA talk. <laughs> Who knows? Christ. I got on my knees in front of a toilet like I always did and said, God, just, just allow me to be a channel if there's anybody in the room. Because what I am for the new people is I'm anything for you tonight. I'm hope. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I could hardly read or write. And it wasn't that I was stupid. I just had such incredible low self-esteem. When I was in high school, I, I'm going to speed this up. Jay said I was supposed to be sober by 8 o'clock. I thought, Jesus Christ, boy, that's really pushing it. <laughs> they didn't even get me up here until 8, 8.08. <laughs> Where was I? God, I hate that. Don't you just hate that? High school, high school. Oh, yeah, high school. What an experience that is, isn't it? That's an experience. Thank you. Oh, God, I needed that. Uh, I'm finally in high school. Shit, that's great. It's only 820. <laughs> we really get down to some serious drinking in high school. One of my best friends is here. His name's Ronnie. Ronnie's coming up. How long are you sober? Two years almost? Two years. Two years. Uh, I was uh, relocated from San Jose. Uh, Mary, uh, I don't really know what happened to Mary. Her life got incredibly unmanageable, and it really went down the hill. And she ended up not too long after we left. We used to, we ended up in various places uh, before we left her. I lived with her until I was 13 years old, and uh, we were in Watsonville and some places that were really undesirable. I mean, we lived in places in Watsonville, and now she's down to doing the the road camps and you know the labor camps and we're living in 
you know, the last place we lived with Mary before living with Melton was uh, was a little hotel room up above a bar in Watsonville, California, with a mattress and box springs. You know, with with a couple of blankets with some artichoke crates, and that's where we lived. And in the morning, uh, she would get up, and we would get up this routine, and we'd. I'd put the Red Mountain wine in one of those little uh, shrimp cocktail glasses and, and help her drink, help her drink it. And she usually gets sick because she's all bloated by now because she had cirrhosis so bad. It wasn't long after that that we went to live with my real father in San Jose. I was 13 years old and I heard it was about maybe six months, I don't know, I don't know exactly how long it was after we left there that Mary died. Uh, and she was a very young woman. I don't think that Mary was maybe, you know, somewhere between 30 and 36 years old when she died. And she, di she died with a, her esophagus ruptured and I heard that she bled to death in a hotel room. She said, when I got to Alcoholic Anonymous and you said I was an alcoholic, I said, no, you don't understand. I know what a woman alcoholic looks like. And I don't look like that. So the process of surrender was difficult for me. You know, I was uh, in San Jose and uh, I went to live with my father for a very short period of time. It was about a year and went to live there in San Jose with uh, my second mother, uh, my second, well, she wasn't my, she was his wife, his second wife. Her name was Catherine. She was from Houston, Texas, and she hated Mexicans, made for a nice combination. My mother is American Indian and, and, and Mexican, and my dad is, uh, I don't know, my dad's, uh, my name isn't really Cartwright, it's McClure, I just found that out about four years ago. <laughs> Whatever a McClure is, what I am, I don't know, what are McClure's? Something French, Scottish, something, some kind of, like, white thing. <laughs> he heavy, heavy drinking. <laughs> together and had me, so that's what I am. And, uh, why am I telling you this? I don't know. Anyhow, Catherine, we didn't hit it off, Catherine and I, we didn't hit it off. i got to tell you how I got to Chowchilla so I can tell you about Ronnie. That's what I'm doing. I'm getting to Chowchilla. Uh, and, you know, I'm 13 years old. Can you imagine what kind of a child? I was not a child. At 13, I'm going to tell you, I was straight up grown up with a bad bad, bad attitude. I had 501 jeans. They were starched with bleached on the bottom. I wore white t-shirts. I wore a black wing breaker, you know, little. I was like, the only goal I had in life at this time was to have a lime green 64 Chevy lowered. It was one of them little dolls, you know, little things in the back. I was going to marry somebody in the Mexican Mafia and I was going to be bad the rest of my life, right? I knew that it was an attainable goal. And I arrived at their house. You know, in, 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 in San Jose, Catherine and Jim, Jim Cartwright, my dad and his second wife. I wasn't there long before she told me uh, that I wasn't my father's, that I was actually a Marine my mother had screwed and he felt sad for her and married her anyhow. And I thought, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that I've got a, a dad who's a Marine. Somebody with really, you know, some gonads out there somewhere, you know, I've just got to find me. <laughs> I've got to 
finding, you know, it's a, I know, this is a hard talk for Jay. You, you can tell he's a proper guy. Uh, He's just a real proper kind of guy. <laughs> um, anyhow, I hadn't had a lot of people tell me a lot about food etiquette. I just didn't, you, you know. Just still, you know, sometimes when I go to the fancy restaurants, you look down there and you think, huh, it's that outside fork, isn't it? It's that outside fork, isn't it? Some people just know those kinds of things. I, I still ponder it, like, hmm. But anyhow, when I was 13 years old living in San Jose, I had no clue about etiquette. So I try to tell you how our relationship began and ended on one evening at dinner. She had that Wonder Bread, that white Wonder Bread that's like this high, you know, on a plate. So I took a piece and I squished it down. And it made me like a little tortilla. <laughs> that part of my family had been with the other part when I did. So I tore off the piece of that Wonder Bread that I made a tortilla out of and I just sort of reached off into my plate and got me a pile and started eating. She flipped out. She absolutely went ballistic. She just, she just like freaked. You eat like a even Mexican. Not at my table, little girl. Not at my table, little girl. You're not going to eat like that at my table. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, you know how you just get like, oh my God. Oh, because you know, the truth is, is that I wanted to eat rice. You know, she told me I'd never eat at the top of the mark. I don't know where the top of the mark is, but she told me I was never going to eat there. You know, a spiritual experience I had, and this is for people that are new, was when I was two and a half years sober, uh, in Sacramento, I, you know, I, made a little money on a job and I, and I wanted to go to a nice restaurant and I called all my friends in A and they were all busy. So I went by myself. I thought, well, you know, I'm sober and I can do this. And I picked the nicest restaurant that, that I felt that I was, it was appropriate for me to go into in Sacramento. And I went there like at 6 o'clock before my home group. And I went in and I, and I ate by myself in this fancy restaurant with cloth napkins. And the little cherry tomato, I cut it in half and I chewed with my mouth closed. And I left an appropriate tip. And I went to my home group and I, and I said, man, you know what I did tonight? I ate in a restaurant with cloth napkins all by myself. Because Alcoholics Anonymous told me, that I was given the keys to the kingdom and I could have anything I wanted and that I was good enough to eat in a restaurant and talk about <laughs> And those are the kinds of things that have happened to me over and over again. I know you're probably wondering how long I've been sober. There's some of you thinking, boy, has she ever gotten sober? <laughs> By the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and great sponsorship, the last time I ever had anything to use was July the 11th, 1983. 
So I came to you and I became a retread in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was one of those that I'd get a little bit of time and, and, and I would use again. I'd get a little bit of time and I'd use again. And uh, there were many people who never thought that I'd make it. And even myself, I never thought I'd make it. You know, in those days back in, in, in the early 80s, they didn't talk a lot about feelings. They didn't talk a lot. I didn't want, I don't want to be hearing about any of that crap about your childhood. You talking about alcoholism? That crap out. So, you know, here I am in Modesto, California, or Turlock, or Merced, and I got like 60, 70 days clean. Guess what happened to me? Now I started feeling stuff. Just like, lots of stuff. <laughs> just kind of, it kept welling up in me. You know, and it took, you know, I was here in Alcoholics Anonymous about, about the time I ate, ate with cloth napkins. Is this yours? <laughs> thanks, thanks. Well, thank you. I'm getting it all messy. <laughs> but when I, right after I ate with the cloth napkins, I started crying. I haven't stopped. You know, uh, there's a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. She was my sponsor for a little while. Her name is Rose, and she told me that tears are the cleansing of the soul. The Indians, you know, so I have, my soul needs a lot of cleansing because every time I get with you, a lot of times I do this. And it's a, it's a tremendous gift in my life to be able to be authentic and real with you and share with you, if you're new, these, the joys. You know, standing in front of you. You know, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in Wrangler jeans, flannel shirts, cowboy boots, two six packs of beer, and forget you. Now, I felt Ronnie. I knew I'd get back there. It's okay. So, Catherine, you know, my stepmom that said I'd never eat at the top of the mark. She was an alcoholic. I know that surprises some of you. <laughs> that, uh, she was a raging alcoholic, you know, just raging. And one day I came home from school and she was in an alcoholic, you know, I know today what it was. She was in, she was in convulsions on the kitchen floor. And I, and I called, and I called the police. I didn't know they called the police and, and then they, and they got an ambulance and they took her off to the hospital and, uh, they put her in a hospital and, and Santa Fe General Hospital said she had a little nervous breakdown. And, and she made ashtrays. You know, she made little clay ashtrays. And they said that the problem was with me. Her problem was me. And so if they could get me out of the house because I was such a hostile, violent, you know, uncontrollable, you know, all those things. I actually had a social child psychologist or something tell me when I was 11 years old. He was actually over here in Santa Clara somewhere. Uh, he did uh, an evaluation on me when I was like 11 years old. He took me in a little room and he had a, he had a file on me because I was owned by the state of California. I was owned by the state of California. I had sort of a, like when you're in prison you have a number. When you're in the child care system you have a number. And I had a number. And I think they found me quite interesting actually. And they would take me into these little rooms and ask me questions that I felt were inappropriate. And there was this guy, and it was a, it was a process. I'm sure if you're social worker, you know about this process. And when, you know, your mom gets picked up for, the person who's your significant parent gets picked up for prostitution, you get put in a holding home, they take you as an intake. And they take you in these little rooms and they ask you questions. Like, how, how do you feel about your mother committing suicide? 
Well, you know, I'm 11 years old. What do you think I, what do you think I think of this guy asking me these kinds of questions? With a sweaty head and a beady lip. It looked like a child molester to me. I thought it was inappropriate. So I said inappropriate things back to him using the F word and M a lot, you know. I felt if he was going to be inappropriate, is it appropriate that I'd be inappropriate to him? So I thought it was a fair game. So after we did our little inter interview intake, do you know what he told me? He told me that I'd spend my adult life incarcerated in prison because I had the inability to adapt because I was angry. Can you imagine that? Can you grasp that for a minute? I was angry. I mean, Liz, I know you understand that. Well, wait till you hear her on Sunday. That's the greatest speaker. Liz B., she's the greatest speaker. You gotta, I know Sunday, I'm gonna tell you, you should have seen her at 17. That woman has passion for recovery. How old are you right now? 76 years old. I know, I know she doesn't mind me saying, you don't mind me telling, asking, you tell everybody how old you are. Yeah. She has an incredible message. I hope you guys come in here. I, you know, you've got some incredible speakers here this weekend. Uh, where was I? I was with that guy telling me I was going to say I don't like incarcerated in prison. Huh? Can you imagine that? So, so do you know if you're new why I'm a miracle? Because I never had anybody tell me that I was able to, that I was going to be able to make anything in my life. When I was in high school in Chowchilla, I had Mr. Welk take me in his little office when I was like 16 years old and open up my high school file and tell me, well, based on your IQ, I don't think we need to do any college preparation. Your IQ is only 89. And I'm like, well, is that, is that low? <laughs> I don't know anything about those things. He says, well, you know, 89? You know, 80 people with 89, you know, they usually have trouble holding saliva in their mouth. <laughs> didn't make it upstairs with the retards. You know, I guess you're doing okay. We'll leave you in the general population here in Chowchilla. <laughs> so I'm 11. I'm going to be incarcerated in prison. I'm 16 and I got the IQ of an 80, you know, 89. Holding spit in my mouth, I'm actually doing a pretty good job. Uh, what, what do you think was in front of my life? What do you think what future I had? Do you think that alcohol and, and, and those things were, were, were magical in my life? You bet they were. It was an answer for me for a long, long time. When I graduated from high school, not being able to uh, spell or type, what do you think a good girl would do? I joined the Carpenters Union. You know, I joined the Carpenters Union not out of the fact that I was some kind of trailblazing woman, women's liver. I just couldn't spell. <laughs> and I work well with my hands. I know, it's hard for you, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm a great carpenter. <laughs> and it was an incredible accomplishment for me in 1979 when I got that little card that said I was at journey level because I went through four years of apprenticeship and I completed it and I really thought that that was the best I'd ever do in my life. But I thought it was, boy, you know, that's not bad. It's not bad from where I came from. You know, that's not bad. It's not bad for a little kid that was scraping gum over here in the Fillmore, is it? You know, and and I started the, you know, I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started hearing that there were that we could have our dreams come true in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and uh, you know, I was a, I was a, a puking drinking. I, I guess I haven't I haven't talked enough about all of that, but I was one of those blackout puking drinkers. I mean, I was one of those who would just go away. Towards the end of my drinking, I drank Coors Light only. Because, you know, Coors Light, it was like, it's kind of like flat beer. Somebody left somewhere and put back in a can. It's sort of like, you know, it's kind of like, it's not really alcohol. And, and, I, and my last, one of my last drunks was in a little, a little town in, in, in the Central Valley called Winton, California. A little bar called The Wagon Wheel. It's one of those bars you can smell, like, from the back of the room. You know, it's dark and it stinks. It's always like Merle Haggard playing on the Merle Haggard and pig feet, and you know. Uh, no, I know you're all from San Francisco. You didn't ever experience anything like Merle Haggard and pig feet. Uh, about 11 o'clock, you know, you're all sitting around the bar, loving each other, listening. You know, I'm always on a mountain when I fall. You know, it's just like. It, it, and there's this incredible bonding that goes on. It's like, oh, it's going to be okay tomorrow. Give me another. I buy the house around. You know, it's, that was what life was like. Wild. With those people that, you know, people don't want to be with. I went to places with, with uh, alcohol and, and later. You know, what I want to say about that drug, that white drug that you put up your nose or wherever you do it nowadays. Uh, <laughs> I was very fortunate that they, you know, they weren't smoking it and doing the other stuff. But what I want you to know about that is, is that I really, and I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of that because that was one of my major problems, is that it really sped up getting me here. It really did. And I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. But it got me here faster. This night, this night in the wagon wheel, I went in there. I was just going to have a couple. I was doing controlled drinking at this point. I had so many chips from Alcoholics Anonymous. If I put them all together, I'd have a concho belt to go around me twice. You know what I'm saying? I was a retread in Alcoholics Anonymous. I just couldn't get it. I thought that, you know, that, that I don't know what I thought. I don't really know what I was thinking in those days. I came out of a blackout with a guy uh, driving my car. And, you know, you go to meetings, you know, it's one of those retreads in and out and in and out. And, you, you know, you think, hey, are these stories true? And they keep saying you have all these yes and you're going to seek lower companionship. You know, you know, all those things they say in meetings. They must say them in meetings around here. <laughs> Anyhow, there was this, you know, there was an old timer in Turlock that kept telling me, you know, Edie, you can stop any time you want. You don't have to go out and create any more wreckage. And, and I would think, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, but it was hard. I just, for some reason, I couldn't stay sober. And uh, this last drunk that I had, I came out of a blackout, and here's this guy driving my car. He's got tattoos all over his body. He has this hairy stomach sitting on his thighs driving my car. And I, and I look over at him and think, huh, wonder where we've been. Because that's what my, that was what my, what my life was about. That's what my life was like. You know, I, I looked over at this guy, and he's got bad tattoos. He's got he's got the kind of he didn't even do time in state prison. He's just all about county time. You know, just really bad. Tattoos. I'm I'm probably having sex with a guy that couldn't even be a decent criminal. through my mind right then is what they say in Alcoholics Anonymous is true. Look at me. Look at this. Look at this. Oh my God. 
What are we gonna do now? You know, and I and I hear some movement in the back seat. I turn around in the back seat. You know what's in the back seat? Oh Christ! There's a woman back there. You know, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, when we had those uh, contoured boob tube things, uh, uh, tube top, tube top. Get on the tube top. With these hail angels wings coming out the top of this top, I'm like, oh my God! I'm with like viper people. Christ Almighty! I can't believe. Oh my God! I found that lady, she had the whole eagle. It was, it was a sight. It was a sight. It was not done quality. It was not a quality tattoo. But, you, you know, do you look at these people and say, I'm a retread in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me there would be nights like this. <laughs> if you open up my glove compartment, you'll find chips from Alcoholics Anonymous. I got 30 day, 60 day, 90 day chips in my glove compartment. I'm at the chronic stages of my alcoholism, and you need to take me home. <laughs> I don't know if any of you are retreads in Alcoholics Anonymous and ended up in any kind of these little predicaments. You know, what do you do? Well, you know what this bright alcoholic came up with? Well, you're already in this predicament. Why don't you just do it up really good? You're obviously going on a little trip here. <laughs> he's like driving intently, you know, like with like really certainty, like he's really going somewhere. I don't even know where we're at. So I look at him and say, so you got a beer? And he looks at me and says, well, sure, you bought beer in Sacramento. What? You know, Sacramento's like a good two, you know, hour and a half, two hours from Witness in the Central Valley, Sacramento's over here. It's like, so we are going on a trip. Uh, they informed me that we were going on a trip to Reno to buy drugs with my money. I know, isn't that something? I'm like, oh, I'm not going to say no, I, well, you're not going to use my money. But anyhow, what happened is I decided that I was going to do it up good and for all, and I was going to, I was going to call it, because you know, on the top of my Wranglers, in that little pocket, I always carried meet, uh, AA numbers. You know, we start doing these strange things when we become retreads in Alcoholics Anonymous, because let me tell you something, I absolutely believe if you've ever made it to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you are really an alcoholic of my type and kind, you will never, ever, ever drink with any comfort, if ever be comfortable with your drinking. So if you're here tonight and you're, and you're thinking about that, let me tell you something, it's awful. It's awful to go back because you know, you know in your heart you're an alcoholic, so you might as well just stay here with us. It's a great place to be. Like a four, I don't know, you, you know how you lose time when you really are committed to doing it up? You know, it's your last time, you know, you're like, you know, it's like riding the bull, man, hang on, you're going to do it up good. And I did it up good, and I, I, four or five days, I don't know how many days later, I woke up in a place in Modesto, I was on Tully Road in Modesto, California. How I know I was in Tully Road is the, 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 uh, the, the TV guy told me so. Everybody was gone. They'd gone to work, obviously. You ever do those things just you end up partying and partying and everybody else leaves and there you are. And I woke up and I knew that this was it. And I pulled out that, you know, I found that number and I called this woman by the name of, her name was Mary S. in Turlock, California. 
And I said, Mary, I don't know if you'll remember me, but my, na my name's Edie. And he gave me, oh, I remember you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember you. How are you doing, honey? And I'm like, I'm doing bad. But if you come and get me, I'll go to that place called treatment. See, back in the early 80s, I thought that AA had a place called treatment, and they took you there. And, and, and all the wealthy AA people just paid for you to go there. It was before all the care units and all that. So, so I said, now I'm ready to go to treatment. She goes, well, where are you? And so I found the TV guide, and she came and got me and took me to treatment. I don't remember her picking me up because I was still in and out. And I want you to know that when I, she took me to a hospital, uh, the Scenic General Hospital, and she took me to a detox ward called Reality. And I woke up in Reality. <laughs> I swear to God, it is still there. It is still called Reality. I think it's the greatest thing for drunks like me to wake up in a place in a detox ward called Reality. God has a sense of humor. I woke up in my Santa Claus County pajamas and a little red, not little red, little green striped uh, robe that somebody had smoked them, roll your own cigarettes and got holes all in it. <laughs> and uh, I decided that when I woke up and looked around and there was an old wino on the couch next to me, I said, so where are we? <laughs> and he looked at me and said, you're in deep. <laughs> that was far too drastic of an action that somebody had taken. I don't remember taking it. <laughs> and, I pulled my, and I pulled myself together with my robe and I went in, I knocked on the glass and they buzzed me in to this little office and there's a man in there by the name of Hank. And I told Hank my tale of woe. I said, you know, you just don't understand. <laughs> I grew up with an alcoholic and, and, you know, I started telling him about Mary. I said, you know, I, I'm I'm not like that, you know, and and I got some problems with some drugs, and I, you know, I'm I'm having a bad run of luck here, but I think this is, you know, and I want you to know, for all the times that I've been around the program, and all the times that I wasn't able to hear, for some reason that night, I could, that day, I don't even know if it was day or night when I was talking to this man. He looked at me and he said, you know, honey, you're one of those that, and I see I see your kind all the time. You're in the chronic stages of alcohol and drug abuse, and I don't think you have long left out there. You came to us in real, real bad shape. And I can give you your clothes, and you can go back out there in it. He says, but honey, I don't think you got long left. If you could just, you know, stay with us for a while. We've got a 28-day program. If you could just stay with us for a while, you know, you might be able to pull this thing off. You might be able to have a life that you could never imagine. And I don't know why that night was any different, or that day was any different, but I thank God every day that I heard him. Because the truth is, is that I was in the chronic stages of alcoholism and drug addiction, and I was dying. I was dying inside. There was such a starvation inside of me. And that starvation has taken a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I came to you just broken. My spirit was broken. And I had such a, a hunger inside to be loved and to be acknowledged and to do something with my life. And for that night, I could hear that man. 
and I went into the woman's area and I pulled out the shower curtain because I didn't want to see anybody see me pray. And I got down on my knees and I said, okay, God, look. <laughs> I know that I'm not in a good place in my life and I don't, you know, I'm not in a good place with you. I don't even know if you're there. But what I know is, is that I do not want to die like Mary died in some flea-bitten hotel room and be put in some morgue and wonder if anybody's going to have enough money to bury me. Give me the strength to do this thing and get sober. And I want you to know that if you knew that was the beginning of my recovery. I didn't get sober. Like, that was like not for good and all. I'd like to say, but it was the beginning of my commitment. I went to First Street Fellowship in, in Modesto, California, and after I got out of the 28-day, I went to the 28-day program, and after that, I got five more minutes. <laughs> Shit. I hate that. <laughs> oh, well, hell. Really, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, if you cannot figure out that I work the steps, you know, these speakers who get up and they, and they do such an eloquent job of going through, well, I work steps, and they go through, look, I work the steps. <laughs> and, in the, and, and, and what I've done with you tonight is, is my, my recovery is sort of like a quilt and woven in all these little stories is recovery. And there's an incredible, you know, there's so many other things that I could tell you, and I just didn't. <laughs> but I can tell you that I, I, I took the, you know, there's an old man by the name of Earl that saved my life. I used to go to First Street Fellowship in Modesto on the wrong side of town, and it was a room about half as big as this, and it was all corrugated metal, and when it rained, you could hear the rain hit, and it had two heaters, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, he'd come and open up the, the, the hall, and he closed it at midnight every night. And they played Pinochle over in one corner. He had that little Chihuahua dog that everywhere walked, you could hear it, right? His name was Earl, right? He was a, you know, he was a pain in the ass, Earl was, you know? I would go there and I'd sit on those old couches that somebody no donated, those kind that were all sunken down and somebody needed to pull you out of, you know, those kind of couches. <laughs> and he'd play Pinochle, and I'd sit kind of in between the heater and the Pinochle, and they used to have meetings over in the corner. And I didn't go to the meetings. I just sat in the room. It was too hard for me to go over and share because I had, I had, I had, trouble, I had trouble talking. I had trouble doing a lot of things. And he used to say to me, Honey, there's a meeting over there in the corner. And I think, Christ almighty, every night this old fart's going to tell me there's a meeting over there in the corner. I know there's a meeting over there in the corner. Isn't it enough that I'm just in the room? And one night he said to me, well, if you're not going to go to the meeting, how about you get in the kitchen and wash some cups? <laughs> and somebody had given First Street Fellowship a bunch of those white mugs, those, those white mugs that are they're kind of thick, and if you're a big man, you can't get your finger in them. You know, you know those kinds? And I went and got me some bleach and Comet, and I scrubbed them cups. They had like 56. I don't have any of these cups they had, but I became the best cup washer First Street Fellowship ever had. I mean, I scrubbed them cups. I went and got me some contact paper in the kitchen. I painted the kitchen. I became, I just became, I became a cup, scrub washing cup girl. <laughs> and I got so that I'd kind of hoover around the table. You know, hoover, yeah, I don't know. That's probably not even a word. Believe me. <laughs> English language, I forget that. <laughs> I'd hang around the table. 
and if, if you weren't like paying attention to your cup and stuff and I didn't smoke and I, it wasn't smoke, I'd grab the cup and go wash it. <laughs> And so people started, I'd come around, they'd start grabbing the cups, right? <laughs> but it wasn't long before I could sit at the table. And that old man Earl, he gave me my, he was my Eskimo. He was my angel and Alcoholics Anonymous. See, he gave me my place in AA. You know, there's so many things I want to tell you. When I was three years sober, they, you know, I was at a home group, and I was, I was a self-employed general contractor. I'd gotten my contractor's license. I don't know how I ever managed to do that, but I did. I, you know, because I'm not stupid, that's why. I'm really, I'm not stupid. I pulled off some things. But I was self-employed because I didn't have enough self-esteem, and I don't, it doesn't matter about all of that. Somebody said, you know, we need a, state of California is hiring building inspectors. Why don't you go see, get yourself a real job, this architect told me. So, you know, people in Alcoholics Anonymous helped me put together a resume and fill out the application. And when I was three years sober, I went with 700 men to the, to the com community center and I took the test to become a building inspector for the state of California. And guess what? A pass. <laughs> and I was the first woman ever hired to do industrial inspection for the state architect's office in the state of California. You know that uh, there are many, many things. It's nine o'clock straight up. Well, I'm going to take a few extra minutes. Please. <laughs> I, only, I, I think I can do it in about four minutes. Is that okay, Jake? Okay. Uh, uh, if you have dreams, I want you to know if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, I'll never be able to do it. I had a, an old Indian guy. I was at an AA conference for American Indians in Las Vegas, and I was in a talking circle with an old medicine man. You know, I got my, I had a medicine man give me some eagle, some eagle feather. Yes. And they say that if I touch it, and you, you hold it and you touch it, that you speak the truth. And that's what I've told you tonight. But what he said is that, is, and it's, I think it's applicable actually to all, all people that come to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, you know, when he was a little boy, he, uh, the medicine man carried these rocks everywhere he went. And he always thought these rocks were magical, and he always wondered what the, what the rocks were for. And, uh, God, I'm a mess up here. Sorry, so mighty. I'm just like dripping everywhere. How are you doing? at the right age that he could communicate with the medicine man, he walked up to the medicine man and said, medicine man, you, could you tell me about these rocks and the power and all that? And, you know, what do they mean? And, and the medicine man put his hand on his shoulder and he said, well, son, I'm just, I'm just moving that mountain one rock at a time. And he says, and that's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we get here with these, these lives that are like mountains, with the stuff that we have to clean up and the messes and all the hurt and the harm that we've done. And what we do in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, because it says that we, we do this as a we thing, is that if you stay here long enough, and you work the steps, and you find yourself a home group, and get yourself your own cup, I think the worst thing happening in Alcoholics Anonymous is styrofoam. I think everybody should have cups that somebody needs to scrub. <laughs> And if you stay here 
long enough and you work those things. You know, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, the only thing filed into my future was my past. That's it, my past. I'm stupid, I've got a low IQ, I should be incarcerated in prison. That was all that was in my, my, my life. It was just totally about my past. You know, and I've done a lot of work and a lot of different programs and a lot of different things, and the truth of the matter is is that the fourth step and doing those, those things called, you know, inventories and working with a sponsor and just for a moment thinking that you don't know everything. I don't care who you are. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care. I am not an educated person, but I am very bright. Almost too bright. And you see people come in here just too bright. I was one of those that was almost too bright. To the point where I, when I finally got there with Earl and his little chihuahua saying, you know, it was like I was almost not even alive by the time I finally got to you. You know, that old man Earl called me up and he asked me to come and speak in the desk there when I was like five years sober. And he said, would you come? We're moving the hall. And he says, you know, you're my darling in Alcoholics Anonymous. I tell everybody about you. And what you know that that old man died when, about two years ago, and he had somebody with less, less than 30 days holding him at First Street Fellowship with him and his chihuahua dog and that newcomer on the floor, and he died. But I want you to know that he died in the arms of a newcomer. And the magic in this program is really working with other people. The biggest gift I get is working with other people and having, I, I, I'm a great cook and I love to have people over my house and I cook for people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love to have the people that I sponsor, my friends, over to my house so I can cook for them. This is a wonderful program if you stay here just long enough to think that you don't know it all. You know, I, uh, I, had a, I was actually at a, at a training. I work at UC Davis right now. <laughs> Can you imagine this? I work at, I'll just tell this story, then I will shut up. <laughs> I, uh, I was working uh, for the state down in San Diego, and I absolutely hated it. Uh, a, a lot of, uh, oh, I hate this. I have so much to tell you, and I have no time left. So what? Um, and I'm going to stop. Holler, I need to stop. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So anyhow, I was, I was at this thing. It, it, uh, well, I'm going to tell you how I got this job at UC Davis. I applied for the job. Um, I applied for it. You know, after you've been here a while, you learn how to apply for things. You know, you learn how to write. I still have a computer that I that I write. Is that for me or is that for you? Um, you know, I write. I write. You know, I can write because I can talk. And you can tell I can talk. I can't spell anything I can say because I put it in the computer and I hit spell check and it just says no suggestions. <laughs> anything phonetically. But what I want you to know is that if you're here and, and you may not have the problem that I have, but there's a few of you that may not think that you're bright enough. I'm going to read this to you and then I'm going to sit down. This is a, this was written by a woman by the name of Marianne Williams and it was Nelson Mandela said this at his inaugural speech and I'm going to read this and then I'm going to sit down. Because this is my message to do if you're new. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, 
Who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, and your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel in, so that what uh, this touches me so, because this is what I've done all my life. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. You were born to ma make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And that's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous if you stay here long enough to get the gift. I want to thank you for allowing me to share. <laughs>